Welcome to the Progressive Patriots Podcast, a Lux Media production. Recording is going. Uh, there's definitely a lot more going on that I did not, I did wasn't able to get. I also had a bit of a busy day as well. But I do want to later, at some other point, bring up the... There's an election in Poland where the a left coalition reclaimed parliament from the diet fascist. Um, they call themselves like Justice and something, mm-hmm. Party Justice and Law or something. Yeah. yeah. So I served quite a bit in Poland um, while I was still on active um, back in mostly 2016, 2017. Um, very interesting political posture over there. Um, a lot of their kind of, and maybe we can save this discussion for when we get into it. Unless are, are we like already rolling, or yeah. how is it? Yeah, we're live at okay. the moment. Yeah, we're live. Oh, okay. Well, shit. So <laughs> I think. Well, <laughs> great. So I I think that there is kind of some really interesting parallels between like the uh, Polish political situation and, and certainly the way that Polish political narratives uh, mirror our own. Um, one of the biggest parallels that I noticed while I was over there uh, is sort of like this constant threat of invasion narrative. Ironically, I would say that Poland uh, has a much more legitimate basis for that, but it still gets used in the same way. Uh, here in the United States, oftentimes, uh, political narratives on the right get kind of formed around this this idea of you know this very big dangerous world where we're being beset on all sides we've got a you know an invasion happening at the border is oftentimes like yeah. the, the language they like to use to describe what is in fact just a badly mismanaged outdated system of uh you know both immigration and just international commerce like it, it but that hyperbolic language is is used for a reason, right? It's to get people riled up and put into a fearful place where they feel like they have to make either be a paralyzed into submission and do absolutely nothing. The, that kind of benefits the status quo for the people who are already well served by the system, or b absolutely. makes them feel like they have to make this sort of like uh, national defense based decision, mm-hmm. you know, where maybe they're not not making decisions based on their their kindest uh, kindest intentions you know you know they'll justify things like uh you know mining on sacred lands or you know uh separating kids from their parents yeah Yeah. exactly exactly exactly. people will, will accept these just absolute atrocities if it's done in the name of national defense that i don't think that anybody normally would so Poland has kind of a, a, a similar situation happening over there, both because of, you know, many, many displaced peoples uh, coming from the Middle East, coming from all over the place, um, but also because they have, uh, they share a land border with Belarus and uh, on one side, and then on the other side, they have uh, the military, the Russian military enclave of Kaliningrad. Um, where there are hundreds of thousands of Russian troops, and they have uh, a historic memory of being invaded and conquered and exploited and abused by their neighbors for 
millennia, you know. So it's really a big part of the Polish consciousness to kind of have this, you know, sort of well-founded sometimes fear of invasion and very defense-oriented posture. So it, it makes them, unfortunately, uh, ripe for exploitation by fascists who want to consolidate power and uh, a lot of the same ways that they try and do that here in the United States political context, they, they do there as well. You know, they, they keep things based in this idea of a traditional nuclear family and have very uh, restrictive gender roles. And that's kind of like what they, they try and purvey. That was my experience also with, um, when I was in Kosovo, I served um, in a joint Romanian uh united states capacity and then we served alongside a polish ukrainian joint battalion which was a really interesting experience um simply because i had never been exposed to either of those cultures before um and the level of cooperation like i said it was a joint battalion uh the level of cooperation between those two countries at that time when I was there was something that was, I mean, you couldn't distinguish, like they were one unit, you know what I mean? There was no, no. there was no distinguishing line. Very similar the, histories though. It's like, uh, yeah, exactly. We both Very got boned histories. by the Russians. So let's be friends. <laughs> boned hard by the Russians. Yeah, let's very. be real. Um, one thing I noticed though, is that a lot of them were deeply conservative. Uh, I think a lot of it goes back to like what Derek was saying with the um, nuclear family, with this idea of uh, what is a correct family, quote unquote. Um, I think that lends itself traditional to traditional masculinity. Anger. What do men yeah. do? What do women do? Women are in the kitchen or taking care of kids. Definitely. I think that kind of lends itself to why they have kind of a pervasive. Uh, I mean, not not solely, but it lends itself to why they have kind of a pervasive kind of <laughs> sense of toxic masculinity across the country. Um, well, I wouldn't is... even say that it's across the country. Honestly, like I, I spend times in more metropolitan areas in, in Poland mm -hmm. anyway. I spend a good amount of time in uh, Łódź, uh, Warsaw. And I would say as a nation and like their national policy posture, uh, Poland is still like a Western democracy, I would say, head and shoulders above the United States in a lot of important ways, just in terms of like uh, what human rights you can expect to be kind of, <laughs> yeah. kind of respected. Yeah. Now, granted, like in, when you're in like uh, more rural areas, little villages, and certainly within the microcosm of the military units I was I was engaging with, yeah. I would say mm -hmm. those probably trend conservative in similar ways that the U.S. military does too. Um, got along with them great, but then oh, when you have great kind dudes. of like the, yeah, you, you still have like you know the person-to-person -person interactions uh, with the average enlisted guys, especially, um, and it's funny because like in a lot of the ways that uh, I think poverty is a big driver for people to join the U.S. military uh, to a much greater extent than, you know, patriotism or nationalism or or any of these kind of like grand high-minded ideas about freedom and justice and democracy and all that stuff. Uh, in Poland, they pay their enlisted 
service members, absolute shit. <laughs> like so much worse <laughs> than ours. Um, they're yeah. really mostly getting paid in room and board uh, on the junior enlisted side, and they don't have any guarantee of you know moving their way up through the ranks. Like you can be a private for twenty years <laughs> in, in Poland. I heard um, that from the Romanians as well. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. counterpart was a Romanian sergeant major, um, and the dude was just an amazing person. But like, I got to talking to him, and he had been everywhere. Yeah. everywhere and i'm like well why haven't you retired yet and he's like well i'm still saving up they don't have retirement like we do pensions. Um, and i think that's yeah pensions anything like that so i think it's 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 something we take for granted in the american military system definitely yeah i don't think the conservative um diaspora of our military understands just how socialized their lifestyle is <laughs> yeah oh, 100 percent. they 100%. absolutely do not get it but yeah okay so actually this is a perfect time i want to do a formal introduction hey, hey. yep this is progressive patriots uh my name is leo i'm joined today by moises and derek who you just heard having an excellent conversation on how it is over in with our homies in europe um this is the international edition i've been wanting to I wanted to do this one more than the U.S. version, to be honest with you. I just have more interest in it. But regardless, they're both really important to have. So I'm really glad that we got to kick this off. Uh, let's see. It is currently about 1545 on October 18th. So given how quickly the shit in Israel-Palestine <laughs> is going, you know, things probably will be different by the time you hear this. So... You know, I, we kind of jumped right into conversation, but um, I think in some ways, uh, having Moises and I as your your co-panelists for talking about this, that we're uh, in some ways kind of uniquely uniquely qualified. Um, but uh, I was thinking maybe Moises, if uh, if you want to share kind of like your your background and bona fides and and your yeah. travels and things, and kind so, of where your perspective comes from uh, as we're talking about international affairs and everything of course leo Definitely. can leo can do his editing now yeah i can cut this to the beginning yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh definitely my background uh is in human intelligence collection um and analysis so a lot of my job uh when i was in the military was dealing with confidential informants and talking to people who were giving us that that on the ground from the from the people in the room perspective um, I served in Kosovo in Eastern Europe. Uh, I was there when they declared independence from Serbia uh, unilaterally, uh, unilaterally in 2008. Um, I spent a lot of time in Germany <laughs> training other soldiers to do this job. Um, and just, you know, uh, like my friend Derek here, uh, DLI, uh, the Defense Language Institute being exposed to uh, native speakers of not only Arabic, uh, you know, that we were both sent to DLI to go learn, but like also while you're there, you uh, are interacting with, you know, you might bump into the teachers who teach Korean, uh, teach Chinese, or, you know, there's a multicultural little fair that they do for the food and you get to go around and like experience cultures. So I think there's a, there's a very, uh, 
eye-opening experience that happens uh, when you join the military and you expect to, to see one thing and then you go towards the intelligence linguist side and you're like, oh, wait, cool. There's this entire side of the world that I'm getting to experience that, you know, I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Um, but like for me, that's what makes me so passionate about international news and keeping track of things um, just to make sure that people here don't overlook things that are happening other places um, because sometimes and, and most of the times uh, it's just as important to what's going on everyday American life. Why are all uh, these Venezuelans coming to the U.S.? I don't understand. Yeah, like, exactly. They of have course no you don't idea. fucking understand. Yeah, because they don't understand the, the the. How many people don't don't understand our own political system, let alone the political systems of other countries? You know, like it's it's just. I mean, I don't want to be nihilistic, but like there there's there's a certain amount of multiculturalism or a level of multiculturalism that you're never going to get to. But, like, we are failing at the very base. <laughs> mm, Derek, yeah. a little bit from you could, as I, well. Yeah, I could, couldn't, couldn't agree more. With the, with, first, I, I got to say, like, with uh, with Moises's, uh last comment, I'm, I'm drawn back to, like, the... Because we're also just, like, kind of fucking politico wonk idiots that are yep. addicted to <laughs> addicted to news and politics and just yep. following kind of like the the you know the horse race that is elections and and kind of like uh really the sports fandom that is the rest of politics <laughs> so uh i that that for some reason that that made me made me think of the moment where uh the uh one of former president trump's former uh, secretaries of state, Mike Pompeo, uh, asked this reporter from NPR to find Ukraine on an unmarked map af after asking some, you know, completely, oh my God. I would say like harmless question about uh, the, at that point, the administration's position on things that were happening in Ukraine. And this is back in, I don't know, 2018, maybe, maybe 2019. Um, <laughs> And then <laughs> what, what, what kills me is Mike Pompeo came back and furnished an unmarked map of Europe, like a map that did not have country names on it and, and like tried to test this NPR, like uh, foreign, foreign relations correspondent of all things. Like if anybody can find fucking who covers Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, map, I bet. Yeah, oh exactly. I was like, Oh buddy, you are, you're really, really doubling down on, on your, uh, on the big feelings that have been hurt inside you <laughs> by this reporter that asked you to do your job. Um, anyway, so before I, I chase that rabbit any further, um, you know, I, I would say ever since I was uh, pretty young, I, I really loved the idea of being uh, kind of a global citizen. You know, I didn't I didn't have the privilege of doing a ton of international travel or anything when I was real little. But um, when I was 16, I, I saved up a bunch of money and, and sold all my stuff to go do a foreign exchange to uh, Germany. And while I was in Germany for my uh, essentially my whole junior year of high school, um, it was completely eye-opening. I mean, for one, I, I lived immersively. I learned 
the language by living with a German family, going to a German school. Um, and then I was also just so fortunate that this family I, I lived with was a very worldly, multicultural family. They were importers. So they, they were a couple of hippies who had spent the 70s traveling through uh, India and Chile and Mexico and uh, Thailand and went all these different places, made a bunch of friends. And uh, their, their identities were very heavily informed by their travel. And so we would have friends coming in from, uh, you know, Northern Africa would come and stay at, stay at our house for a weekend. And I, I get to, you know, stay up into the early hours of the morning, uh, drinking tea with these guys, sometimes beer if I was well behaved, which I rarely was. <laughs> um, still, still rarely am for better or worse. Um, but really got to get the perspectives of, of all of these kind of uh, global citizens, these very worldly people who are traveling all over the place, um, in part to sell their wares, but also in part just because it was the way they kind of oriented themselves to the world. That, you know, the place that they were born did not really define them. Really, it was more uh, their feelings about the world and their feelings about other people and their, their desire to learn and experience and see as much as they possibly could uh, with this precious, precious little time that we all have on this world. And that, that really deeply, deeply, uh, impacted me. So even after I came back home, um, uh, I don't know, I couldn't, I couldn't really come back into the headspace of living in this small town and not really giving a fuck what happens outside of it. So, uh, from that point on, I, I started to really kind of care about, uh, current events. Um, I, I ended up joining the army, uh, to kind of start my adventure. Uh, and then I served as uh, an Arabic linguist as well, but rather than a human intelligence collector, I was a signals intelligence collector. So, uh, that entailed all sorts of, all sorts of different fun secrets and trade craft and stuff. But, um, in the course of that, uh, I was also stationed overseas and got to Spent some time in Northern Africa, um, Morocco, and uh, Eastern Europe quite a bit. Um, ran lots of missions uh, focused on the Russian target set uh, out of Poland, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Czechia, formerly Czech Republic, formerly, formerly Czechoslovakia. Um, just really, really loved it. I, I had a lot of great opportunities to interact with uh, foreign military members, uh, as we were kind of speaking about earlier, uh, what the dynamics were like, kind of talking to some of the Polish soldiers, very, very different culture there in some ways, but still with some really strong parallels, because uh, at the end of the day, um, democracies are vulnerable to a lot of the same dirty, rotten, fascist tricks, <laughs> just just like they are here. Um so yeah, that was that was very formative, and just as uh, I think a function of being the uh, soul swinging dick in my entire company who could speak German, uh, I ended up having to be kind of the translator and ambassador and ambulance driver and guy who bails people out of jail <laughs> on a pretty <laughs> on a pretty regular basis. So I would get waking woken up at, at the. Uh, on most Saturdays and unfortunately many Sunday nights as well uh, as the guy on call to speak to the police eye. So my German's pretty good. Um, I, I don't, 
I, if I could go back and do it a little bit differently, I might not have volunteered how good my German was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, like Moises talked about, both of us spent um, close to two years. Uh, the course itself is 18 months, but close to two years at the Defense Language Institute at the Presidio Monterey in California, which is the Department of Defense's premier uh, language school. Um, for It's where we train all of our all of our different variety of three-letter agency spooks and all of our service agency uh, interpreters, uh, linguists, um, eavesdroppers, and, uh, <laughs> and interrogators. And uh, he's absolutely right. You know, you over the course of that time, you spend something like eight hours a day in a classroom, um, very, very small class sizes. It'd be like... Uh, myself and between three and five other students uh, from all sorts of different services and uh, one native born instructor. Um, so I had teachers, professors who were Palestinian, who were uh, Moroccan, who were Egyptian, who were Saudi, who were uh, Syrian, Lebanese, all over the, the Arab world and really got to forge really strong bonds with a lot of those people. And, and as you do that, you know, uh, one of the practical tasks that you have to do on a daily basis is to practice speaking and to practice reading and to practice listening. And for those of us who already really, really struggle to ever shut the fuck up, uh, <laughs> like myself and, and Moises, <laughs> you know, we're already pretty well practiced in speaking. Uh, so for us, it's, it's largely like a, a language thing, but a lot of the other students, um, you know, could, could be coming from backgrounds of being like a little bit shy and, and really uh, have their own sort of uh, coming of age in terms of really learning how to make a daily practice out of reading things like the news. Um, and thinking about what is actually happening and having conversations. Sometimes, you know, especially at the beginning of the course, you have got a very, very limited vocabulary to work with. So uh, you talk about yourself a lot and you ask a lot of basic questions getting to know these people. So, I mean, a, of my dozen or so professors while I was there, I could tell you so much about each of their the, oh, the places they the places they grew up, you know, their their families, their offspring, their hobbies, all of these things that you learn to talk about in the target language. Um, you're also having like genuine one on one conversations with uh, all of these uh, people who have such a, a, a close proximity to and such uh, at times, you know, a really, truly uh, heartbreaking proximity to a lot of the um, pain and devastation and war that has been sown throughout the region, um, largely by outside imperialist actors. So um, I guess all of that is to say that uh, even as, you know, uh, Americans, Moises and I have have grappled with the kind of uh, dynamics of the Middle East um, more even than a lot of soldiers do, you know, because yeah. it, it, it's not just like we went and spent like a shitty vacation uh, to go do do the war and then come back home. Um, it's really been 
uh, a part of our lives uh, before and after and during all of that. Um, so I think about them all the time. You know, I've reached out, reached out to uh, old professors and fellow classmates. Oh, definitely, stuff. dude. I mean, I, I, I don't talk about this uh, a lot, but um, of course, I was a different person. I was like 19 at the time. I, uh, I just about converted to Islam when I was there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was it was an eye-opening experience for me, uh, life-changing, uh, to to experience another culture so intimately. I think is 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 the best way to put it because you really do like you. You know, you almost see them as aunts and uncles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hundred oh, percent. Yeah, they're just they're 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 they transcend the teacher-student relationship. Because you spend so much time learning from them, um, and 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 it really leaves a lot of us change. And it really it goes to speak that so many of us work in organizing, and so many of us graduates from DLI go on to do community work and and work in politics and in government. Because I think a lot of that uh, desire to see the change in the world uh, is instilled in us. Absolutely. I don't think I have a story that's nearly that cool uh, for my, for my, <laughs> to compare to either of yours. Oh man. Um, like I think Derek, you had mentioned earlier how, when we were talking about like the Polish or like your other countries, military pay stuff, how it's not good, not even remotely good. Um, I grew up pretty poor. So this was kind of military was kind of the only option I had uh, in that. I ended up getting put into uh, PSYOP, Psychological Operations. Um, I know a lot of people like to throw that word around like they know what it means, but there's a lot more to it. Um, I always try to easily, uh, the way that I try to m really make it simple, to simplify it, is calling it just mar military marketing, which I suppose it works to a degree, but in in that, as you learn how to do it, you also learn how to recognize the signs of it or, you know, like different elements of people trying to sway opinions one way or another with sometimes pretty subtle wording. And like, that's what drove me to this, doing this media thing. Like I started this doing boxing was, it's my, that is like my love. I love boxing. It's my favorite sport. Um, Which I still need to jump in and chat with you about. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I can have you onto the, onto the boxing show if you want. Um, so there's, I started with that, and then I was thinking about it. Like, you know, I, as much as I love boxing, and I'm, I don't care how niche it is, I'm going to keep doing it. I started thinking, like, you know, the media landscape is not, to, to me, it's not satisfactory. This isn't. I wouldn't want somebody to look at this and think that this is accurate information because it not it really isn't. It's a lot of incomplete stories or you know uh, lies by omission. So here I am uh, trying to trying to use my my dark powers for good. It's funny that you put it that way because that's the same feeling I have with my human intelligence skills. <laughs> Yeah, it's like like this dark tools. I have a certain set of skills. I, I went to uh, 
it was a short course. I think it was only like a it was only like a month long, but it was um, it was run by counter intel guys, and it was like just how to collect information without seeming like you're collecting information. Oh, fun times! Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so there was that. That that as well is another thing where I got to use my. I don't want to be a Sith anymore. I gotta start using my powers for good. Um, no, correct the records because it's our first one. Uh, let's see. I wanted to do something really quick. It was a while back, but there, there's a high-speed rail that is going live. I think at this point it already is, but they're extending a free, like free rides for everybody, just so they could get accustomed to it in Indonesia. And the thing about this is, is soft power. This is being built and very, in large part, funded by the Chinese. And I don't know, it's, it really seems like we're trying to build up our posture in the Asia Pacific region, specifically with um, like Vietnam, Philippines. Uh, Philippines have been traditionally our ally anyway, but with Vietnam, a little bit of a troubled history. Uh, India, I mean, obviously, you got if you're not with one, you're kind of with the other. Don't really have yeah. a lot of options. And we're also off bolstering Australia as well with um, the nuclear subs, nuclear powered subs, I should say. That we pissed off the French about. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> I had that on there. Oh, oh. They were really close I... to sealing the deal. Yeah, China's kind of doing this all over, though. Yes, um, they are. I have more I think stories this of is, China doing this. This is very much a state directive, I yeah, think, for them, is. is kind of gain that soft power where they have more political influence. Because I think they're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they're doing the same thing in, like, Southeast uh, Africa as well. All over Africa. Right. right. Yeah. Well, this um, is kind so, of like a, a much more, I think, farsighted, sort of strategic posture yeah. that China takes compared to the way that we do like the the sort of like the the operating ethic behind this is they're they have a fully planned economy right so they're looking at uh, where is our where is the entirety of our supply chain coming from and where is the entirety of our consumer base coming from and are there bottlenecks in both that supply chain and that consumer base? Uh, just based on the economies of, of places that we do business with. So for them, they, they invested something like seven, seven plus billion dollars in this project yeah. you're talking right, which is a, a funny number because uh, it's, it's about the total investment uh, projected, I believe, required to build like the, the United States southern border wall that Trump was like tooting his horn about <laughs> for, his, for, for the entirety of, of his presidency, right? And, and I... I'm not even making the case that there's there's no economic output to, say, a border wall project, because that is, you know, I mean, they're still contracting that out to U.S. and probably some Mexican companies as well uh, to do that big infrastructure project. But look at what the difference in infrastructure is. You have a one-time investment in making a big, useless fucking wall that also causes a whole bunch of other problems, both in like the environment and in the humanitarian situation that that comes out of that uh and you can spend the same amount of money to create a high-speed rail that gets people uh more involved in the economy 
uh, more mobile, a more agile workforce. It's bringing people in from rural areas. It's bringing people uh, out to the places that work needs to happen. Creating um, jobs. Yeah. Not, not even just creating jobs. Like it, it can absolutely it be makes the country a smaller place. It pays for itself. Yeah. It makes the country a smaller place. It makes communities more interconnected. Uh, and in kind of like the the immediate term, it also ingratiates this this uh, foreign country to China in yeah. a lot of meaningful ways. So really, really stark contrast there. Just the ways that you can use as you know diplomats and as statesmen, ways that you can use those funds to invest in either pandering to your base you know, <laughs> for a one-time liability that you then have to maintain until it becomes a tourist attraction when the Great Wall of America is is a place that people can take selfies a thousand years from now um, versus something that is providing immediate vital infrastructure and bringing economies and bringing people uh, into the 21st century. But yeah, the, the contrast could not be greater. So here's my kind of thing on this. So I live about an hour away from the largest rail yard in the world, Bailey Yard. Um, I know a lot of people that work for Union Pacific Railroad. Um, my wife's family uh, works for Union Pacific Railroad for years and years, stuff like that. Um, America does not give a fuck about its transit system nope. and its trains. Um and that's one of the saddest things I think I have ever seen. Um, I have a railroad, a major Union Pacific Railroad uh, cargo line that goes by my house, uh, you know, right through our town. And these rails, the cars, the everything are, it's they're ancient. There's no uh, plans to modernize. Like there's just... There's this lag in a country that, you know, championed railroad, right? And we championed this, uh, everybody, uh, you know, all American kids are taught in school that we, you know, the great uh, continental railroad and the, and the Golden Spike, right? Golden Spike Tower is in North Platte, Nebraska. That's what I'm talking about. Um, you can go see the site or whatever where they, where they did that. Uh, but then we just kind of did nothing. And that to me is just an absolute fucking shame. Cause think about where we could be as a country and where we could be like, if we were a, a global leader in not only trains, but like what China's doing. What if instead of, uh, spending all this money to build a border wall what if we were interconnecting high-speed rail to connect from like new york city all the way down to like argentina well and, and like this is this is what's so fucked up about it right is is because china has spent the last 20 years spending trillions not billions but trillions of dollars in workforce development and infrastructure so that they, they can move people around working class people around fairly seamlessly between a tremendous landmass in which you've got, you know, cities, uh, multiple cities, dozens of cities, the size and population of Los Angeles. Like a lot of Americans hadn't heard of the city of Wuhan prior to 
prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Wuhan is like the size and population of Los Angeles. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> it is, it's it is an absolutely massive huge. city. Yeah, and, and they've got that process so down because they've spent the entire time and roughly uh, comparable funds that we've spent these last 20 years engaging in uh, wars in foreign countries where we're just spinning, spending wheels. Un ungodly amounts of money and blood, both American and otherwise, uh, just to enrich uh, a few major, major suppliers of those instruments of death. So at the same time, uh, our adversary, our, our opponent, our, our competition, if you want to look at them that way, uh, in China, have spent a lot of that same time and money really building themselves up so much so that they can now fairly easily export infrastructure. Yeah. Like oftentimes yeah. this is not even just like a, a Chinese appropriation in which they're just outlaying seven billion. They send labor they, and supplies. Exactly. Yes. Everything it's, that's needed to make Chinese, this happen. Chinese firms are also uh, operating and and constructing and maintaining uh, these things. So meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, in Aurora, Colorado, like three days ago, okay, a bridge, a railway bridge collapsed. A 65-year-old rust bucket collapsed, killing two people, injuring others, and blocking off a part of I-25 that they don't know how many weeks it's going to be until they can reopen it. Exactly. Exactly. And this is what's <laughs> such, such bullshit about it. And, and like one of the places that I really, you know, as a veteran, I feel like uh, there are so many different ways that we can talk about the cost of war. Right. I mean, uh, oftentimes it gets it gets talked about in terms of the, the human toll, both on uh, the, the many, many victims of war. Uh, and sometimes it gets talked about in terms of dollars and cents. Um, I think one thing that we really don't talk nearly enough about though is the opportunity cost of war yeah like oh, there's absolutely. it's zero sum there is only so many hours a day days in a week weeks in a month months in a year and the years have gone by and as as our body politic has only really been able to agree on a couple of things which is mostly the continuation of our government with more and more frequent punctuations to that uh, and the continued funding of our military, which is largely privatized. I, you know, this, this is what it's wrought. You know, we've got uh, crumbling infrastructure. East Palestine that we have, is a very yeah. clear example of that. Oh, absolutely. 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 And so then that wow. results in, in second and third order consequences all around the world because of that privatized militarization. Oh, absolutely. And yet, uh, not to not to side with Jim Jordan because fuck that guy um, but Jim Jordan was getting criticized in the speaker's race that's currently going on in the US side for proposing a 1% budget cut to defense spending 1% <laughs> that he's getting roasted for that? <laughs> he was getting roasted for that oh, absolutely man. get roasted I love yeah. when I agree I end up like agreeing with Right wingers for like completely different reasons. Oh, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. Like uh, I, I just saw like uh, I saw uh, like uh, 
campaign text message from from uh, I think vote bets or something like that, and it was quoting Donald Trump, um, mainly to like rage bait people into making a donation, <laughs> right? And they're saying uh, it was something like I have never I have never seen a, a more stupid group of losers in my entire life when talking about like a group of, of senior senior military officers and i thought about it like yeah you know senior military officers are some of the some of the is he wrong though? That I've ever been. <laughs> I, I think when there's an adage like, yeah, all right. there's an all adage right. going around yeah, on the that's been going around lately it's the most horrible person you know just made a great point yeah. I know. That's exactly it. Yeah. Okay, I pulled out the quote is, some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. That's how Trump describes some of our most senior military officers on Monday. And you know what? <laughs> um, God, um... God bless him. I, I, hope, I, hope he, I, hope he, I hope he ends up in uh, fucking the worst prison in the United States. I hope they open up the Donald J. Trump Memorial Spider Pit. Isolation chamber for him. Spider pit? Yeah. No, no, no. It's got to be sharks. However, however, comma, he is right. Those are some of some of the dumbest people I've met in my life as well. So. No, he's like terrified of Shark Week. He was terrified of Shark Week, so it's got to be like a cell surrounded by like an aquarium. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh my God. You know what? It's 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 really sad how much of our poli- how much of our discussion, even about the international stage, turns back to like what we could be, <laughs> like what we wish, <clears throat> what we wish America could portray on the world stage. You know what well, I mean? Versus what we're. Nations. I think that's the I think that's the the uh, hope and vision. That our political narratives and and our discussion as a society really lacks. You know, we we have to argue so much over just you know, one the truth, <laughs> like what Basic is fact. actually happening, <laughs> and then two like the 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 uh, you know the goal lines for what gets accomplished in the highest halls of government have have moved basically retreated all the way back to the starting line. Like we're more than what, like 14, 15 plus months into this congressional term. And we don't even have a speaker right now. (laughs) So so contrast that to- I'm sorry, rather this this last, uh, last Congress just started back here. But but look, it's it's October still. (laughs) Yeah. So contrast that to the the communist five-year plan. We were just talking about where they have everything planned out to the, you know, the detail, what they're going to do with their economy and all that. And it makes us look a little dumb sometimes. I'm not advocating for the Chinese Communist Party because I think they're a dictatorship under the guise of communism. Um, But like... You gotta, you gotta admit that there is a certain desirability to having everyone in your country be on the same page uh, that we desperately need in this country. <laughs> we need to reach for uh, because I think so much of the divisiveness and stuff is kind of what lends itself to us being stuck in the mud and not being able to move forward. Whereas they, for better or for worse, are like, fuck it, this is what we're doing. 
you know, like well, you know, they the, can make those decisions. Yeah, and, and I don't, I don't see the Chinese system through, you know, any more rose-colored glasses than I do about the American system. The yeah. Chinese system is communist to the same extent that the American system is is actually a democratic republic. Oh, right? absolutely. Of, when they both switch of them are, to their... are largely branding within like their own very deeply flawed and compromised capitalist systems. Uh, their I think BS, that, what is it, one country, two systems, or whatever, would it be? Yes. Hong Kong? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, with Hong Kong and technically with China, if you really look at it, because they, they merged, they, no, just mainland China. Oh, like they, right. they're, they're a very combo, you know, a combination communist state with an open market, which is just. That's kind of you know, weird an oxymoron but you know it's 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 there's no reality to the communist state like there's as much as the republicans want to jump on this like chinese communist party it's really just the chinese dictatorship well yeah look and the way that i see it is is the chinese economy is a planned economy our economy is also a planned economy the difference is that our economy is planned by unelected corporate leaders that we don't really yeah. have any kind of any kind of like name or face to uh and their plan is is kind of just like built around uh fuck you i got mine and if we fail then the elected officials that we have on on uh on retainer essentially are going to bail us out anyways uh the biggest distinction with the chinese system uh is that although they're similarly compromised uh, they still have this kind of big umbrella idea of of the state, and a lot of their choices are made in the pursuit of advancing the state's interest, as opposed to uh, the individual competing interests of of leaders in corporate America. But yeah, both does of them that, not great. <laughs> does that go back to Does that go back to a sense? And this is like the history nerd to me, but does that go back in a sense to like the idea of like a national identity that these that they have that we as a younger country maybe haven't gotten to yet i think that's such an interesting conversation to have and a, a way that i often see it framed and I, I wonder what you guys think about it too is uh collectivist national identities versus individualist national identities and I think in the United States, the way that that looks is there's this idea that the United States and all of her institutions, uh, economic systems, opportunities, barriers, whatever, uh, are largely about how you as an individual move through it and make your make or lose your fortunes. Um, and really your, your goal uh, to live your American dream is, you know, to build your business, build your empire, build your brand, make your art, whatever, uh, get a bunch of money, and then when you die, leave it to your offspring. Or if you're a really, yeah. really stand-up guy or gal, uh, maybe you start a charitable foundation and you know they, they name a theater or a museum or something after you. Whereas in China, um, it's a little bit more of a collectivist society where a lot of your you know, your value in society and your uh, your esteem in society and even even your self-esteem 
comes from contribution what quality of a citizen you are yeah you what yeah. are you what contributing can you contribute? yeah. yeah yeah exactly and, and for you to gain and achieve at the expense of society is not is, is something oh, that that's immoral. like a very sin yeah, yeah and, and, sin. and looked at really badly whereas in the united states uh if you there are so many people that like are like hey if donald trump sees those people taxes, as suckers yeah if you can get away with not paying taxes then Fuck yeah, you 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 got yours. Good job, buddy. Like that's that would never fly in China. I feel right. Like it's oh. here. It's almost seen as a good thing to step on people to get up to st- to step up higher. Um, that was something yeah. that I experienced. Actually, I, that's something that I learned was very pervasive in Pashtun culture in Afghanistan, which is an awesome segue to the earthquake <laughs> that happened in Afghanistan, I want to say about oh, so, a week and a yeah. half ago. Uh, it was an estimated about 2,400 dead. Um, I haven't checked if that number's gone up. It probably has. Uh, this was uh, just a little bit northwest of Herat. And right, so Afghanistan being what it is, doesn't necessarily have a healthcare system or any kind of infrastructure to make healthcare happen. So they've been depending on foreign aid for the longest time. I expect most of that when we were, like, ravaging it. But once the Taliban took over again, a lot of that foreign aid was cut, mostly because they people weren't allowed to go in anymore. Yeah, yeah. So but isn't this the second earthquake? Yes. Yeah. Oh. So there's about uh, somewhere between 1.7 to 2 million displaced people that fled to Pakistan. And I heard today that the pa- that the Pakistani government is now they're issuing bounties basically it to find uh, refugees, report them to the authorities or find people who are helping refugees and re- report them to the authorities. So they can be sent back. Their deadline is November 1st to get out before they're going to be punished before they're sent away. Well, first of all, I wish we had time for a conversation just about shifting to a bounty-based system of law enforcement. I don't think it would actually be appreciably worse than (laughs) Than what we're doing now. Yeah, than when most places have going out. Add, add like a little bit of a witch hunt kind of dynamic uh, to. Yeah, just make up whatever. W- make the rules <laughs> so that someone you don't like is wrong. Exactly. <laughs> but, okay. How far are we from a video game? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Little, little bit of levity there uh, for the backdrop of just. It's a really terrible event. Yeah. yeah. Really absolutely devastating and, and you know again looking at this through kind of a, a veteran lens uh what i'm drawn to is looking at this as part of part of the full cost of our intervention our decades long war and really you know closer to four five decades long uh for an intervention and investment in destabilizing afghanistan you know, if we look at it just from today and, and our analysis doesn't go any further than, well, the Taliban are in power and they're very bad guys, so nobody should help them. And nobody all should of Afghanistan is shit because the yeah. Taliban are in charge. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If, if your analysis stops there, then 
sort there's a little bit of a through line here to sort of like the the fascist mindset that we talked about that took hold in in Poland and has taken hold here in the United States and, and is often used to advance just really horrendous inhumane policy positions right um, all of that is is based in kind of this uh, this idea that some human beings on this planet are more or less deserving of having a safe and dignified life um, and okay. I fundamentally reject absolutely. that premise you know um, absolutely that's so what's, I'm that's what's been making the the whole situation in Gaza really difficult is absolutely more more like obviously it's horrible what's happening to the people there I'm not trying to discount that but what's really not making me sad about it but what's really making me angry is seeing people just not care very simply don't care about the Palestinians at all yeah yeah um, I read a really interesting quote um, and I'm, I wish I could find who it was to attribute it it was on Twitter um, or X, excuse me, X, X, um, X. yeah, <laughs> you got to do it dramatically. Um, but I saw a quote that said, uh, if you have to ask whose kids, whose children are, are dead, you're part of the problem. And I think that has been so much of the issue has been the tendency of media to I don't want to say overplay because again horrible things happened in Israel yeah. and and you don't want to like minimize that to whatever extent sure. but like there are there are people who are <sighs> capitalizing on it using sure. it and, and, and part of that I think is, it. yeah part of that I think is trying to have like the most charitable lens possible here right I, I think part of the problem is that for those in the media they often have pressure to come up with a story that has a clear beginning middle and cliffhanger a protagonist yeah. and an antagonist um the reason for that is because that's a, a lot of the way that is easiest and most digestible for us as human beings to understand an event that happens. You know, we we seek that. We ask for that kind of resolution, yeah. that pretty little bow on top, like, well, I want to understand basically what happened. And they live happily ever after. Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, or at least like for you to take away some kind of understanding of like who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. But but the reality is is there is no there is no cosmic thread through the universe that is is pulling us towards that structure. That is a narrative structure that just serves uh, those in who are reality, in the business of telling stories. In reality, that's not exactly what it's like. Yeah, you know? protagonist and antagonist are, might be the same person. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, you, you never know. Like, it's... it's, uh, And I think part of... So, to, to kind of track this back to the Afghanistan and to the Israel story, kind of linking it through. So, what do you think of... All right. So some of the criticism before on aid that has been given to the Afghanis has been that the Taliban is in control of the aid and doesn't distribute it appropriately 
with the correct amount of speed that that aid is wasted it's sitting around it's it's not handled correctly right and i see the same criticism now from the israeli side on gaza as to why they won't provide certain amounts or certain kinds of aid because they say that oh it's been proven that you know the the uh hamas takes it hamas fighters yeah that they're gonna come take it so like i know it has happened in both places right but like how much legitimacy does that have so withholding aid because we're talking about aid i feel like it's useful or, or at least maybe a little bit instructive to quantify things so since you since the current or or most recent kind of throws of u.s intervention started in afghanistan we've invested something like uh, along the order of 150 billion dollars or so in direct aid to the functioning of the afghan government that includes uh the karzai regime that collapsed uh and and all of those subsequent and and before and during the U.S. occupation, uh, Israel has ongoing aid that it receives to the tune of you know something like uh, three to four billion dollars a year, going back all the way to the post World War II era. That is, I think, somewhere close to like three hundred billion dollars at this point. So between the two nations. Uh, one of them has received about twice as much aid as the other. Um, both of them have been the subject of uh, tremendous profit by both U.S.-based and internationally uh, oriented defense contractors. These are the guys that actually construct the prisons and construct the weapons and construct all of all of all of these products uh, that are used for you know. Some of them pretty innocuous. Some of them are, are like uh, civil civil projects, like building railroads, highways. And building you know highways, yeah. things like that. Uh, some of them are uh, actually constructing prisons and uh, actually you know providing things like guns and ammunition that keep these conflicts uh, going and well supplied. Um, so that. The point I'm trying to get at there is uh, what we're talking about in both cases is foreign aid as uh, as a policy decision and what strings are attached to that and to what end that they actually get used. Because um, I'm I personally, I'm actually a proponent of foreign aid in concept. Um, I think that there can be economic benefits. I think that there can be uh, uh, diplomatic benefits. I think that they can promote goodwill and peace and, and that oftentimes uh, a lot of social unrest and potential violence are really externalities of, of the underlying issues of, of poverty, which results in, you know, not having great opportunities for people to go do things that are like more peaceful and productive than engaging in, you know, a safe and healthy society where people can live dignified lives. Um, so I, I, Along those lines, I'm I'm a huge fan of the idea of hey, if we as this insanely wealthy, uh, supposedly freedom loving, enlightened city on a hill type society, if we see our neighbors who don't have very basic necessities that we know are are multipliers when it comes to 
improving outcomes in society, like having clean drinking water, like having functioning hospitals, like having electricity and roads and schools and and all of those basic fundamentals that all human beings need. Uh, I say, fuck yeah, sign me up, invest that yeah. money because that prosperity uh, makes its way all over the place, you know, and and it 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 heads off a lot of really scary, sad, unfortunate stuff. Um, mostly, I, I would point back to poverty uh, that results in us having things like, you know, uh, civil war and authoritarian regimes and, you know, um, armed militant groups because people don't have another way to keep bread on the table. So isn't that's, that's that, kind of my thoughts on it. Isn't that what um, Pete Buttigieg, his, like, new Marshall Plan for Central, the Central American Republics was was about was investing in those countries with that with those types of like civil projects that you were just talking yeah. about, so that the people there don't have to come here anymore. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. my only caveat to that would be we also need that shit here. <laughs> yeah, oh, but it's yeah. it's not it's not either or though. You know, no, we can, it's not. I think we do we can, both. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. do both. No, we could do it just with the savings from not fucking investing a, a huge amount of our GDP into just bombing poor people into the fucking Stone Age all over the fucking world. Twenty Hold on, seven, crazy, three, six, crazy idea. Crazy yeah. idea. Instead of 1%, 2%. Yeah, it turns, it turns out we don't need to create demand for infrastructure projects by blowing up highways and airports. We can stop oh that. God. There's already enough demand. <laughs> we can just supply it. Uh, yeah, it's crazy how how bad the infrastructure thing is getting across the country, and people just kind of like, you know, I'm going to drive across this bridge. That's what I was going to going to mention was something that uh, President Biden said today or today or yesterday that we that the U.S. can absolutely afford to continue uh, assisting in the Ukraine war against Russia and also this uh, supporting Israel against Hamas. Or, and whoever else might try to jump in on their behalf, but oh, absolutely. But we can't improve infrastructure. We can't cancel student debt. Uh, we can't have Medicare for all because those things are too expensive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Which is like absolute horseshit. Because, <laughs> yes, it's completely like bullshit. we we have we have uh, currency that is completely imaginary, just enforced by fiat. Like the the government makes it. And yeah. <laughs> like it's it's really not a matter of uh of what we can afford to do it is What's, what what are our money priorities I, well not even just that i would say like what are the moneyed interests in our society that are profiting from the way that things are who is being aggrandized and empowered by us having paywalls to get to things like healthcare to get to things like higher education who is disincentivized like yeah to, to get news just to get access yeah. to the public good of of uh you know competent reporting and 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 having you know some idea of objective what the truth information is about what's happening yeah what's yeah. happening in our country and in our world well yeah. i was told that the wall the border wall is gonna cost uh two cans of diet coke and a handful of tokens from chuck e cheese and mexico's <laughs> gonna pay for them anyway so it's all good <laughs> Oh my God! I want to and move. Some, and somebody in my neighborhood believes that <laughs> it's the saddest fucking statement. Yeah. Uh, just really quickly, one that I wanted to bring up was a situation that's happening in North Korea, 
the there are they're supposed to be considered like political refugees when North Koreans escape somehow, typically along the northern border into China. But China's starting to deport them back to North Korea, where they're typically going to be tortured, or at the at the like best case scenario, like hard labor prison camps. So labor camp, yep. yeah. So it's gonna be, uh, it's a really dire situation, and it's con- it's about coming up to encroaching on a thousand North Koreans a week. Yeah, a thousand a week. I think. We, Oof. I think it was a thousand a week when I t- when I got it, or six hundred a week when I got it, but it's climbing. That's a lot of people, man. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not it's a whole lot of de- lot there's of not people. a whole lot of defectors either. So like, there that number is going to become zero at some point and yeah. uh, one interest so, oh go ahead so i mean something that that i'm i'm drawn to here is i think it's very easy for us to have like uh knee-jerk reactions to this as as like americans uh instead of just as as human beings um i think when we hear news like that and we think about it through this like very american lens we think Oh, what a what an incredibly fucked up uh, process and procedure that these two inferior governments are imposing on these poor victims of of the North Korean regime, um, which there's definitely truth to. However, uh, looking at it through kind of just like a more human lens, uh, our country is also actively doing a lot of that uh, to include, yep. you know. People who are detained at the border and then are sent through our own penal system are oftentimes also put in situations where they have no practical alternative to indefinite detention or basically essentially indefinite detention because our court system is so backed up and lacks any kind of transparency of process uh, for detained persons who are coming across the border. Uh, And then while you're actually in the penal system, so many of the prisons are privatized and infiltrated by uh, these businesses that derive all of their profit from prison labor, which is as close to unpaid labor as you can possibly get. Like they'll 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 give like some hourly pittance of something like 10, 10 cents, 20 cents, whatever an hour, just so they can say they're not slaves. yeah, it's it's like it's like when your your younger sibling has their finger like right next to your eyeball and they're just saying, I'm not touching I'm you, not I'm, touching not touching you. you. <laughs> I'm not touching you, I'm not touching It's like I'm paying you, I'm paying you, it's, I'm not enslaving you, <laughs> I'm not enslaving you. Like it's really it's really pretty damn close to the same thing. And I think for the the people that are suffering under that, uh largely largely feels the same. So I guess yep. long long story short, uh absolutely inhumane deeply disturbing um but i mean i i want us to stop doing that shit here too right you know some of the people that i talk to i do a a little prison prisoner outreach kind of thing and like i hear some of the numbers that they get and i think 23 cents was the highest one i've heard yeah um and the jobs are not fun (laughs) uh one thing one more thing on this North Korea situation is I think it's pretty cool hearing the South Korean government really trying to intervene on behalf of the North Korean people. Um, they have a whole, like, they call it the, the Ministry of Unification. So 
they're trying they're actively trying to i don't know break down the dmz i guess to put it in a way but yeah oh i think there's that there's that group of people who want to go back to the reunified peninsula yeah. reunified korea yeah. so like I mean, a lot more of power do. to them, man. I, I, in my opinion, I'd love to see more peaceful resolutions to, to shit like this. So, the, more power I, to them and their dreams. When I was there, I was stationed there in around like 2009, 2010, that time frame. And every single Korean person I met was 100% open to reunification. Yeah, Most of them actively wanted it at like the worst case in like the younger demographic was like well if it happens i would like that but if it doesn't i mean like i guess we're okay i feel really bad for them though we should try to help yeah. them they're they they consider themselves to be one country just who's in charge of it you know what i mean yeah. and they so they look at each other like relatives like they're our long lost cousins or something and aren't we all yeah <laughs> yeah truly uh, Okay. From the mouths of babes. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel that I feel that way about fucking all of these transporter yeah. standoffs. And, and you know, they, again, there's like uh, there's a strong through line to both of the other hotly contested uh, regions that we're talking about. Whether whether we're talking about um, along the AFPAC border or uh, between. Gaza and Israel and you know it's it's a crying fucking shame that so much of the conversation gets boiled down to the interest of nations and that you know I think the better stars of, of these actual people really get lost because I, I think that your experience is probably a really common one Leo you know I think when you talk to most people in these regions yeah um, they don't have this vested interest in maintaining these borders and these divisions and these uh the false dichotomy of which side are you on yeah and and, and this commitment to violent conflict just maintaining a violent status quo that goes on without end uh forever and ever and ever the people that actually live in these places don't don't actually support that you know so along that line I was in uh, Las Vegas once doing something. I was at I was attending a fight in uh, 2017. I was in an Uber, like me and uh, a couple of friends, and we were all, you know, obviously it's Vegas. We were a little tipsy, and it turns out that our driver, I was sitting in the passenger seat. The driver was he's Israeli from Israel, and he, you know, had moved here uh, not too long ago. My friend, one of my friends being being the f f fantastic joker that he is, he's like, oh, you're Israeli. Oh, Leo here, he's a Palestinian, and he does not support the two-state solution. Oh, my God. And, uh, I, <laughs> I, my, my eyes, like, shot out of my head. I was like, oh, my God, what the fuck have you done? He's going to kill me now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, I feel like that's, like, that's roughly... Roughly the same same vibe you felt at the at the Fountain Hills Republican Club. Yeah, the Club. Schweiker <laughs> fucking rally. Yeah, it was. Oh my god! But it what was I think what was really touching was that he he said like I don't either, but not in a violent way. I want us to live in harmony together because we both have a, an ancestral claim to this land. There's no reason that they should be kicked out. <laughs> 
So that was really nice. Yeah. Uh, that's... And that that is like also factually true. Yeah, at this point. they do. Like you, you, mm -hmm. and and it's also possible for like many people to have ancestral claims to common land, and for that not to be necessarily a point of contention, because cohabitation is not only possible, uh, it is inevitable. It is it is the direction that all society trends is towards uh, a a more diverse population sharing space, and that's actually a desirable thing. It's actually a really beautiful thing, um, and, and it is possible when you don't have interested actors from the outside agitating for continued conflict, agitating yep. for continued violence, because they have such a a, a huge vested interest in maintaining the power and profit that comes from keeping people alienated from one another. I'm going to counter with one thing. how strong we're going to be. I'm going to counter with one thing, that inevitably the po the populations will get less diverse because we're going to intermingle so much that it's not really going to be an issue anymore. I don't know. I think at some point you, you still always will keep uh, diversity of... It, like I, I think that you're you're thinking in terms of like uh, genetic diversity. Yeah, and, and like that's that's not even really. really. Yeah, I, I really I don't even think that that's really really what makes uh, society diverse. It's not so much about necessarily having different genetic traits as it is having culture. a society where yeah differences in cultural differences in values uh, differences okay, I in, see. in in sort of the way that you. Uh, the way that you orient yourself towards society and still have a place in that society. Right. To me, that's that's sort of like more end goal-y sort of Utopian. diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Because as, you know, as you far can... as like genetics goes, like the white supremacists got something coming to them because everybody going to be brown like... Some shade of brown. 200 years from yeah. yeah, some shade of brown a few hundred years from now. But I think the yeah. cultural differences, yeah, definitely are will survive. Uh, speaking of surviving... Another awesome segue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so there is a situation in Taiwan happening where uh, 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 the traditionalists who favor what they favor, not unification with communist China, but they want to have like a functioning relationship so that there's no more tension kind of thing. Mm -hmm. is they are starting to clash more with the Democratic Progressive Party, which they favor Taiwanese identity and autonomy. So they don't want to be the Republic of China anymore, like the Republican exile. They want to be Taiwan, and that's it. So that is coming to a head. I really scrambled my brain trying to figure out how they're like president and then they have a premier uh and then prime minister it's a parliament it's really weird i couldn't i couldn't grasp it but pretty much everybody in the dpp wants to have their their thing the like to have the, a separate identity and all of the kmt which is the kuomintang the traditional the traditionalist uh yeah, they're saying that this sort of separate separatist talk is going to only make things worse. So that's but kind of like, 
But like, how do you? Okay, so I, as as an American separated from the situation by both distance and culture, <laughs> let me caveat this heavily. Um, but like, I just don't get. All right, so Taiwan is basically where the Republic of China. I have a little bit well, of a timeline here. Yeah, go for it. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's where they got chased to, right? Yes. It's like, if I'm remembering, it's like where, where General Chiang Shai-shek got chased to at, yeah. uh, towards the end of World War II. Uh, 1911, the Republic of China was established, ending the imperial dynasties. Uh, and then shit was a lot of infighting, and then the Japanese invaded. And then December 7th, 1949, after the communist party started rising up then the republic the republicans had to flee to taiwan so like i think at that point they created a separate identity right yeah. the republic of china so like, is on the island yeah so like I, I mean is is the is the difference like the taiwanese culture that was there prior to this and they're saying like they should just go back to that how or it's, like, I guess I'm just trying they've to integrated with that and they want okay. to that they want that to be their identity what has come from the Republicans who fled and the the native Taiwanese and who seem to be living cohabitating pretty well I've never heard of anything yeah. happening between them yeah I, I guess that's a really nuanced and difficult yeah <laughs> um, yeah I don't know a ton about it myself, although I, I will say, like, uh, in terms of the way that the issue is framed and reacted to within the American body politic, it is always such a strange litmus test to see where political actors come out on, you know, preserving a democratic Taiwan uh, and then having, like, pretty radically, to my mind, contradictory views about uh, Ukraine. And then further contradictory about Israel-Palestine. So, I don't know. It's uh, I think that that's kind of like a, a larger conversation to have about what it means to grapple with foreign policy as an American. Yeah. Because when you talk to, you know, a, I've got so many friends in, in who are European and Northern African. And one common uh, critique <laughs> I've heard from them when they come and visit the United States and you know, turn on the news or whatever. Um, they say it's like it's like you're living in a completely different universe. Like the way that we cover news and the way that we relate facts. Uh, oh, I usually turn to international media just because oh, I want to be fully informed. Yeah. So Moises and I are both uh, kind of classically trained Arabic linguists. And uh, I think it is such a blessing to be able to get news about the Arab world. Uh, uh, in, in Arabic. native, uh, yeah, yeah, getting yeah. getting Al Jazeera Arabic, sure, native native reporting from from people who are actually there in in the language in the words that they're choosing. Because you can even go to say like uh, I I do uh, BBC Arabic pretty regularly, mm -hmm. right? Um, BBC Arabic coverage of Middle Eastern issues is different than the BBC in English. <laughs> Same thing with Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera has uh, English language international reporting. They yep. also have Arabic language international reporting. 
and it's and it's different. different it's yeah, it's a different, different editorial team. It's a different reporting team. There is translation that happens, uh, but they're also uh, functionally separate news agencies in many cases. So it, it is interesting I, to see how siloed our our uh, understanding of these events are when we're only looking at it through American news media. If you can even find American news media who are making a half-hearted attempt at covering international affairs these days. <laughs> yeah, I also watch a lot of RTVE, which is um, Spanish from Spain, uh, yeah. just because it's it's really interesting to get the EU perspective. Um, I, I I think that's that's a valid criticism that people make of us as American media consumers mm -hmm. um, is that we're very US centric. If yeah. it doesn't happen within the United States, it's not popping up on our screen unless it's a massive war or something terrible happens. We don't get that regular update of what's going on everywhere else yep. that most Europeans and everywhere else in the world, you know, it <laughs> gets. True to uh, diet is terrible as Americans. Yeah, <laughs> include our information much. diet. <laughs> yeah, mostly pretty junk. much. <laughs> Absolutely, mostly junk. Reality TV. Don't get me started. Um, but like, you get me started. I love some reality TV. Oh, like I, I, I like my junk, man. It's a, I know. It's a good reprieve. There's two concurrent seasons of Bachelor going on right now. Oh, God. <laughs> is it the Golden Bachelor? Golden is that the one? Bachelor in Paradise? Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's been incredible for me. Oh, oh my really God. Love that for me. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad I'm into sports. Uh, um, I'm glad I'm not. I'd be missing out on Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> But that oh, that uh, that's, media... that's 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 true blood sport, by the way. Not to completely derail the international discussion, <laughs> but watching watching a bunch of twenty somethings date on an island that is that is sport. I don't care who you are. <laughs> it's a game of the minds. <laughs> it's a game of somethings. That's <laughs> I don't think it's the minds. That that that's actually why I wanted to start doing this was because I don't think that Americans in general get enough information about what's going on in the greater world because we're not the only country on it as i'm sure everybody should know but well there's a lot of americans that still to this day never you know never are born. Left their hometown yeah never leave their hometown never leave their home state you know like I, I i live in nebraska there's folks here who have never been outside of like nebraska kansas iowa uh, and that's I, like to me you're only getting like a point zero five percent of the world view you know what i mean like you just right. you're not seeing enough of the world to to get the perspective as a human being that maybe yeah. somebody who's traveled to europe africa you know asia has been all over the world like there's 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 truly something that happens when you travel i think that like opens you up to a broader viewpoint what was the, the quote from mark that. twain like the greatest cure for like ignorance or something is to travel oh yes. it's to travel yeah yeah um all right this is another slightly older one but i feel like it's really important to remember what's going on in ukraine especially with uh palestine israel popping off uh cuban men are going to ukraine they're being recruited by the russian military 
Um, they are getting signing bonuses that are around $2,000, the majority of which is being sent back home. Uh, the places that people are, that the men are being recruited from are have unemployment somewhere in the neighborhood of 25%, uh, which may, obviously the place is fucking destitute. Um, there's not a whole lot of opportunity there. Um, just really quick aside, I remember so, uh, some campaign rally where uh, <clears throat> Mr. Trump said that I've heard that uh, unemployment is, I've heard 35, 36%, even some places have said it's 45, 46%. Like, dog, th- half of the country is not fucking unemployed right now, you fucking <laughs> moron. Um, anyway, yeah. so. Havana, the government of Cuba has insisted they're not recruiting, and what makes me believe that they are arresting people. Russian recruiters are being arrested for human trafficking. Since I don't, I don't know, not sure how they how they work that out in particular. This isn't the first time they've done it. No, it's not. So the Russians did this in the late seventies when they invaded Afghanistan. Um, it's the Russians have have had a really weird relationship with Cuba for a long time. Um, there's there's Russian speakers in Cuba. There's there's uh, communities of Cuban Russians <laughs> because of the exchanges of people and, and 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 intermarriages and stuff like that. But like I'm pretty sure they did this in the 70s, in the late 70s, uh, during the Afghanistan conflict. Uh, when they start running out, they go to their partner countries, and it's almost like a foreign legion. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know? poor friend. Here's money. Go shoot them. Yeah, here. Here, poor people. Here, here. We'll feed you for a little while. Come shoot these people for us. And that's oh, so disheartening. So disheartening to see people from the Caribbean dragged across the world and embroiled in a conflict that what? Like they have nothing to do with they're it. Basically, yeah, they're basically just cannon fodder. I mean, I imagine that these people aren't being provided with the best equipment, training. Actually, that was what I wanted to somebody. what I wanted to comment on. Um, the source that I got this from, that person was talking to a Cuban man that was in. He was in boot camp, and he was in a uh, his platoon. I guess his boot camp platoon was about 120 guys. Uh, so maybe the training's a little watered down, but they're going through like the full, the, they're going through the full training regimen and other reports of Cuban men that they're already at the front lines there. And there's a lot of them. I can't imagine oh. they're. I don't, I expect they're not getting the best equipment as well, but they're not being poorly trained. Look, I grew I grew up in Miami. So part of me just wants to giggle a little bit as a bunch of bunch of Cuban soldiers on the front lines of Ukraine just talking shit and <laughs> and fucking around. But like uh, the realities of 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 that are a little more, I think, scary than than meets the eye because and this is what immediately jumps out to me is how similar is that to the Spanish Civil War? 
when that conflict started in the 30s? escalating and escalating and escalating. Yeah, in the 30s. And then it kind of flatlined, right? So what do both sides do? They bring in foreign fighters. It's it's an interesting, I think, uh, comparison to make. And I think kind of a historical through line uh, to what Moises uh, is talking about and kind of what you teed up to, Leo, uh, is by degrees, we got to look back at like, okay, let's ask some fundamental questions about the material conditions that have have caused Cuba to have unemployment upwards of 25%. Embargoes. That's not just like, exactly. It's not like Cuba just has, you know, a uniquely unemployed weather or some shit. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's a fucking US policy decision. By design. Uh, yeah, by, by design. So this is this is just like happening out of nowhere. These are uh, this is poverty that's being Excluded, deliberately yeah. created and and, and in, imposed, and then uh, on the other end getting exploited. You know, there even is... though they have a vaccine for lung cancer, <laughs> apparently. I believe it. Oh. It's it's incredible what what the fucking medical profession can accomplish when it isn't constantly stymied by rent seeking behavior and profit incentives, when it's just there to make people healthier. Go figure. So there is a similar parallel happening, like as far as the there's going to be sanction and sanction easements happening for Ven Venezuela. It's conditional, but. Uh, Maduro seems like he w is going to play ball. I think it's. I think the only condition that I've heard so far is that their need their their elections need to be held by an independent commission, so that they're fair and free. Uh, that's that's going to be interesting. I don't know much more about it. Um, <clears throat> I was just listening to that on my way home. From where yeah. it was. It is always interesting to see like how independent election commissions actually play out. Like, uh, how independent it, are they? Right. Like, is it independent? Like, a U.S. consulting firm is going to be provided? <laughs> no, to, I believe it's that, third party. That independent election, or is it UN? Okay, so if there's like a third party body that is actually yeah, it's it's not going to be American. It's not going to be pardoning. Venezuelan. Mm hmm. Uh, hmm. One thing on Africa that I got last week in Niger, the the foreign ministry has expelled the all of the French contingency. Um, they refer to the UN as having used underhanded maneuvers to try and help France keep Niger out of the UN General Assembly. That was like a few weeks ago. Mm -mm -mm. As an aside that I thought was worth mentioning, that accreditation to the UN is held by a committee and they don't meet until at the end of this month or beginning of next month. So why they couldn't go, they weren't they weren't accredited, but I don't know. The withdrawal that's... The French withdrawal that's... 1500 plus troops that began on the tenth. Um, this is all predicated on the coup in July, where the military overthrew 
um, they, they overthrew the civilian government, and now they have a junta, junta, whatever. And this, yeah. so this is a trend that's happening in the region. Mali and Burkina have also had the same situations happen, but French uh, French presence is being kicked out. Um, <laughs> So is this just like leftover throes of, col- of colonialism? Like, I mean, to me, it's just an African nation expelling a, U- a European power. Yes, um, and no. I'm, I'm really sorry to interrupt uh, that thread, but I am going to have to take off here. Um, I've got uh, another engagement, but really, really awesome conversation. And I see that we've still got the entirety of Israel, Palestine, Palestine. And, and the Middle East to do. Uh, would you guys be interested in continuing this conversation uh, tomorrow at some point? That's fine with me. Yeah, we can do that. This has been super, be. super fun. I had a blast with you guys. Thank you so much. Definitely. Yeah, of dude. course. Good talking to you. Yeah. All right. Talk more soon. All right. Bye. See you. Later, dude. Bye. Uh, all right. So, yeah, let's wrap up this uh, bit on Niger and we'll save sure. the Middle East stuff for later. Um, so... It is and it isn't a leftover of colonialism. What it is, Niger was having, and other countries in the region were having a serious problem with um, Muslim extremists, like terrorist groups, pretty much. And Mm -hmm. France, having previously had been a colonial power over Niger, they felt obligated to help. Ah. So they, so it's like France. Hey, feeling... we fucked you guys up. So like, we'll help you right yeah. now. Sorry. Like, oh, we feel a little paternal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh... but Niger, they're sick of their shit, and they don't want them there anymore. Well, I mean, ultimately, it's up to the government of self-determination. Niger to... Yeah. So I mean, it, it sucks that a coup went down and and shit is going the way that it's currently going but like in my opinion uh, i think the united states and other countries have had their hands in the cookie jar for too long yeah (laughs) and i think we've we've already kind of messed up the playing field to the point where we should just kind of step back and let things progress the way they're going to progress and stop self-determination yes yes they're... And even if that means that they determine a path that we don't like. Right. Um, you know? Like if Chile wants to have a socialist president, let them. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, there is, like, on the down the road of cookie jars, there was a situation in Australia, but I don't know that much about it. So I, I know it was a vote to give the Aborigines representation. In government, but oh, that's interesting. I'll have to look into yeah, that more. That, I want to look that, more into that. Yeah. Um, I know that the Australians have not been kind to the Aborigines. Like we don't really have much of a pedestal to stand on for that because we haven't either. And but there's parallels <laughs> here where there is like the Cherokee Nation has a it's like a contractually bound delegate that's supposed to be in the House of Representatives and since the, like, the treaty was like in the 1850s or 1840s 
and even and since that day, it still has not had the first Cherokee delegate sent to the to Congress. So I wanted to the, also look into that ugh, to give it some parallel. So many old, how many old treaties are sitting out there that we're just shitting on every day? Mm. <laughs> that are still valid, probably. But that, I want to look more into that so I can speak from an educated position. Uh, so let's get ourselves out of here. Um, socials and contact options. Um, the socials for Lux Media is LVX Media Net on everything. If you can't find me, I'm not on it. Uh, for contact options, you can go to progressivepatriots.us and the contact options are there. It's an email address and a phone number. You can call and leave a voicemail or you can text. Either way, it's anonymous. It's unattended. I'm not going to see it until I start preparing the outline for the show. So... If you want to tell me I'm stupid, go ahead, and I'll just tell you that you're stupid, too. <laughs> Common Defense. Uh, not an endorsement from them to us, us to them, but it's an organization that I really like. At Common Defense. I think Instagram is common underscore defense. Uh, another one that's local to me is Vets Forward. It's Vets FWD on Instagram and then Vets underscore FWD on Twitter. I'm not calling it X. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. To I refuse call to call it X. it X. So a couple of other shows that we're doing. Um, so this is the international progressive Patriots. We also have a domestic U S version. Um, we just released our third episode. It was obviously the house speaker shit. We didn't, I didn't have the Jim Jordan vote that happened today. Uh, kind of went as expected though and we discussed Israel-Palestine more in terms of from how it affects the U.S. and the U.S. human landscape um, I know it's like that's really I don't know nationalistic or something but it's kind of the that's what that show's for and here's where we give <laughs> we're going to give it a lot more detail I have the a little bit of a history of it because I was as I was trying to put the outline together I just didn't know enough so I took the time to learn myself and I'm going to make sure that anyone listening is going to learn too mm, I got here to educate Yeah. The so there's the situation starts in 1948 there's a lot of, conf, of armed conflict that happens um, there have been attempts at peace talks at various points in our recent history and then there is the difficult pain points that is that is keeping any kind of peaceful resolution from happening so we'll get to that on our next one another show that i do uh with my cousin it's called hard shell tacos she and i we uh we grew up in very mexican households but we were not mexican enough for them, not American enough for the other people. So yeah, we were like the the weird kids, the outcasts, I guess. So we kind of talk about <laughs> stuff. Like, how do you feel about shit? Uh, mentioned boxing earlier. B sides boxing is where we do all that. It's gonna be. It's a. It's a great time. I think our most recent one we talked over that fucking farce that was Canelo Charlo. 
Oh, geez. Yes. <laughs> and there's invite I'll, me to the next one. I'll yeah, yeah. I'll let you know. And <coughs> there's and there's more coming up. Ultimate fucking casual. When you when you search for it, ultimate effing. You know. So there's that for MMA stuff. Uh, there's UFC 294 is coming up soon. So with all that, Moises, parting words. Um, follow me at Real Mo Montaldo. Uh, you can find me at that on most of the socials. Uh, the only one I'm really using right now is Instagram. Uh, but yeah, hit me up. Um, love to hear from you guys. Uh, you know, call the number, email us. Uh, I'd love to uh, hear your guys' perspective on some of these stories. And uh, love you. Have a good one. Yeah, even if it's just to give a comment or a, a personal anecdote, that's completely fine. I would love to hear from anybody about pretty much anything. That's going to do it for this. Talk to us. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to do it for this <laughs> international debut of the Progressive Patriots. We finally got deployed. Holy shit. Uh, finally. Yep. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody.